0: When will you understand that we must win brothers and sisters from the other side with love and not with force? I tell you. The fruit of the Gospel is not only righteousness, it is love. Here is how I must use my freedom. I must give myself to my neighbor, as Jesus Christ in love gave himself to me. I must do nothing in life that is not needful to my neighbor, because through faith I have all that I need myself. In this way, and in this way only, can I become a true son. Gracious
1: God. There are two questions that often arise when discussing the Reformed view of man and salvation, particularly from people who are used to viewing the subject from a humanistic or Arminian perspective. The first and most common is, if all this is true, then why bother evangelizing? And related to this is the manner in which we are to present the gospel. If man is spiritually dead and completely unable to choose life, how are we to present God's good news, the offer of eternal life through Christ? Let's look at each of these issues in turn. First, why evangelize if God has an elect and they're already predestined to come to Christ, why do we need to do anything to help make it happen? Well, we evangelize because
0: God's commanded us to. If God is God and we are his creatures, the fact that he says to do it is enough. Well, first of all, we should evangelize, if for no other reason, simply because Christ said do it. Okay? If there was no logic, no rhyme, no reason, if we had nothing but the simple command, go, therefore and preach. That's why we should evangelize, number one. But then secondly, Uh, a more comprehensive answer is that evangelism is the means by which God has purposed to bring his will to
1: pass. And so the God of the ends is also the God of the means. And what are the means that God has ordained?
2: God is pleased to use human means to accomplish glorious, divine, and eternal ends. And we have the incredible privilege of being co-laborers with Christ in bringing to pass the greatest, most glorious ends imaginable, the redemption of all of God's elect. God has
0: intended to save men through the means of mortal human beings. It's absolutely astounding that God would use um, a weak, frail, sinful human being to testify to the Lord Jesus Christ
1: This raises another question that needs to be addressed. Is God helpless without you or me to evangelize? Are His arms so short that He cannot save without our help?
0: God doesn't need me to round up the elect. But He gives me the unspeakable privilege of participating in this work of redemption. I think it's a delight for us to be able to be engaged. And it's the same thing with prayer.
1: As a result of free will theology, much of modern evangelism falsely assumes that God is helpless without us to proclaim the gospel. Though they would never say it this way, the impression one gets is that without us, God can do nothing. Scripture, however, teaches the exact opposite. Jesus put the ax to the root to such humanistic thinking when he responded to the Pharisees' plea that he tell the crowd to stop praising him. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. In the same way, his cousin John the Baptist rebuked a crowd for only trusting in their religious heritage. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones.
3: It is our duty, sir as Christians to attempt the spreading of the gospel by speaking to these heathen nations.
2: Mr. Carey, Mr. Carey, calm yourself down. If it pleases God to save the heathen, he shall do it without your aid or mine.
1: Fortunately, William Carey didn't listen to that church leader. Some friends helped him start the English Baptist Missionary Society and under its auspices in 1793 he sailed for India and became the greatest and most versatile Christian missionary sent out in modern times. Kerry was a Calvinist. Evangelism is a responsibility and a privilege. Arminians sometimes think that if the church embraces Calvinism evangelism will die. However, when you consider that many of the greatest preachers and evangelists in history were Calvinists, this fear can be seen as unwarranted. In section one, we gave a short list of these men. If time were permit, we could spend hours, even days, naming off others. Who would ever charge Jonathan Edwards or Spurgeon or Whitfield or J.C. Ryle or John Piper or Dr. Kennedy with being slothful in their responsibility to evangelize? Well, no one at least no one in their right mind.
3: If we look at the history of the United States, we see that our greatest revivals, the most impressive ones in our country's history, uh, were produced uh, through the sovereignty of God uh, by people who were committed to the doctrines of grace. The first great awakening in the 1740s, 1730s and 40s with Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield were remarkable outpourings of God's grace, and they were outpourings of God's revival by people who proclaimed the doctrines of grace. You know, the standard knock on Calvinism is
4: that it undermines the reason for evangelism, that if God has already chosen him, there's no reason to evangelize. But the fact is the greatest evangelists in the history of the church have for the most part been Calvinists. George Whitfield, certainly one of the greatest evangelists in the whole history of the church and one of the founders of America, really, a Calvinist uh, who led a huge number of people to Jesus, and others have been as well. So the reality is that a man's more likely to preach the gospel when he knows that God has already sovereignly chosen to make him a success at his efforts uh, than he is if it's just based on human will.
1: The fact is, not only does Calvinism, with its high view of God, demand that we obey the Lord and take the gospel to the four corners of the world, it also guarantees our success in the enterprise. Because we know that he has ordained that his elect, those that will believe, will be saved through the foolishness of preaching, we can have every confidence that as we obey the Lord in both prayer and proclamation. His word will not return void, but it shall accomplish what He pleases, and it shall prosper in the thing for which He sent it. Now on to the second question. In light of these truths, how and to whom should we present the gospel? The answer to the second part of that question is really quite easy. We're to be ready instant, in season, and out of season to present the gospel to everyone we meet, or, as Jesus put it, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. At this point, the Arminian will often ask, why every creature? If God is only going to save his elect, why waste your time sharing with people who've not been appointed
4: unto salvation? Well, quite simply, God doesn't tell us who the elect are. When people say, why preach the gospel to every creature if only the elect are going to respond, there are two answers. First of all, it is part of the indictment against the lost that the gospels preach to them and they don't respond, number one. And number two, uh, part of the gospel is its its leavening effect in the culture as a whole. So even unsaved men are affected by the gospel that seeps into their lives.
1: A man once came to Charles Spurgeon and said, If I believe like you, Mr. Spurgeon, that God saves some and passed by others, I'd give up preaching. To this Spurgeon replied, God has called me to preach his word, and if I knew that all the elect had a yellow stripe painted down their backs, then I would give up preaching the gospel and go lift up shirt tails. We don't know who the elect are, and so instead strive to be all things to all men, so that by all means some, meaning the elect, might be saved. As we now look at the content of our message, we would do well to consider what to avoid. As we've already seen, much of what passes for ministry today has been compromised by the leaven of humanism that often treats its audience as autonomous creatures that have every right to sit in judgment on both God and His Word, picking out what they like and throwing away the rest. Along with this has come a result-oriented approach to soul winning. Where people seem more concerned with how many walk down the aisle, than with the content of the message. If the number's not high enough, then the message is changed to make it more palatable so as to get the maximum number of people to make a decision.
4: You know, surveys show that 82% of Americans believe in God and believe themselves to be Christians, and yet we have less influence as Christians in American culture today than at any other time. So the question has to come up, what kind of gospel are we preaching? What's wrong with what we're believing?
1: There have been studies that suggest that both numerically as well as by percent of the total population, more people profess to believe in God and be born again than at any other time in U.S. history. And yet, with all these numbers, the church has less influence in our culture today than she's had in years past. We need to ask ourselves, what's wrong with this picture? In part, the answer may be that instead of seeking the elect by presenting food for the sheep, the priest's Word of God, which the Holy Spirit uses to convict the elect of their sins, many are seeking the bottom line numbers. And since numbers have often become the standard by which to judge a ministry's success and not wanting to offend and drive people away, much of the modern church is no longer preaching the sinfulness of man or the bloody offense of the cross. As a result, the church is offering the wrong kind of food. Instead of food for sheep, much of today's preaching and evangelism is food for goats. And goats are now everywhere.
2: Jesus told us that the gospel was an offense, that the cross was an offense, it offends our sensibilities. How do you package that? How do you market that? How do you make an offense seeker-sensitive. Well, what you have to do is you have to take away the offense. And when you take away the offense, you take away the gospel.
1: Examining what he termed the superficiality of modern evangelism, the renowned scholar and soul winner, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, presented the solution. Evangelism must start with the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the demands of the law, and the eternal consequences of evil. Of course the fear today is that if you're not positive and entertaining people will not come. As Pastor Stephen Lawson noted in his book Made in Our Image, step into the average church these days and you will likely see that the services are designed more to remove the fear of God than to promote it.
0: In the 16th century the heart of the Reformation Luther warned his contemporaries he said anytime the gospel is preached clearly and boldly, it will produce conflict. And people don't like conflict. And so, as a result, they will change the gospel, water it down, or try to take away its offense. When the evangelistic meeting is all designed to produce the effect of people, of large numbers of people walking forward at the end of the meeting, Uh, you tend to do things very differently than you do when you're pressing the gospel upon the hearts of men and urging them to respond in prayer to God.
1: A.W. Pink, Baptist minister and author of the classic book, The Sovereignty of God, observed, The nature of Christ's salvation is woefully misrepresented by the present-day evangelist. He announces a savior from hell rather than a savior from sin. And that is why so many are fatally deceived, for there are multitudes who will wish to escape the lake of fire who have no desire to be delivered from their carnality and worldliness. Instead of preaching the law law of God to convict men of sin and expose their guilt before a just and holy God, many churches opt for a non-confrontational approach to both preaching and evangelism. Ray Comfort explains, The modern gospel says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives you love, joy, peace, fulfillment, and lasting happiness. The sinner responds and in an experimental fashion puts on the Savior to see if the claims are true. And what does he get? The promised temptation, tribulation, and persecution. Peace and joy are fruits of the gospel. They are not the tree and definitely not the root. If we really love people then we need to tell them the truth. And what is the truth? That if they're outside of Christ If they have not submitted to him as Lord and Savior, then they're sinners in the hands of an angry God. As Jonathan Edwards preached in perhaps the most famous sermon in American history, the sentence of the law of God, that eternal and immutable rule of righteousness that God has fixed between him and mankind is gone out against them and stands against them so that they are bound over to hell.
0: We tell people they don't need to repent because God loves them just the way they are. And the only reason to come to Jesus is to have greater peace or greater happiness
2: or a better trip than they'll get from drugs. That's not the gospel at all. God is love, but God is not promiscuous love. Promiscuity throws love around sentimentally without discretion or discernment. God's not that way at all. God's love has a purpose. God's love uh, has the purpose of redeeming us and changing us. God does not love us just the way we are. God loves us so that we can be what He wants us to be.
4: You know, the standard evangelistic approach is to tell non-believers God loves you just the way you are. Well, a a wise non-believer is going to say, well, if God loves me the way I am, why should I change? We've got to get rid of that kind of humanistic nonsense.
1: The goodness of the gospel, the good news, becomes truly good only in direct relation to the bad news that it comes to address. That all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we have violated God's righteous standards more times than we can number. That the wages of our sin is death and that the holy anger of God abides against us in anticipation of the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. When all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be cast into the lake of fire. Without understanding the depth of our sin and our offense against a thrice holy God, the good news becomes the okay news. Just another 12-step program in our modern therapeutic culture. Martin Luther understood this. He explained that presenting a cure without explaining the disease was a trick and device of the arch enemy of man. Satan, the god of all dissension, stirs up daily new sects. He has raised up a sect such as teach that men should not be terrified by the law, but gently exhorted by the preaching of the grace of Christ.
5: Excuse me, sir. I have the cure for cancer for the stage four non Hopkins lymphoma.
1: Uh, that's great. Good luck with that.
5: Sir? Sir? I- it's for the stage four non Hopkins lymphoma. Yeah, right. What uh,
2: is that?
5: I have the cure for cancer for the stage four non Hopkins lymphoma. Excuse me, sir. I have the cure for cancer. It's for the stage four non Hopkins lymphoma.
1: I'm proud of you. Thank
5: you. In this test tube, I have the cure for cancer. I, I have the cure for cancer. It's for the stage four non-Hopkins lymphoma. The, the stage four non-Hopkins lymphoma. It's for the stage four non-Hopkins lymphoma.
0: I don't have cancer, thanks.
3: Uh, I don't Thank have cancer, so thanks very much.
4: But I wish you the best. And, Thank you. and hopefully you'll find somebody that you can help. Thank you. Uh, that, that's great. Got to get to
0: another spot.
5: But it's for the stage four non-Hopkins lymphoma. Mr. Goodman, I'm afraid I have some bad news.
2: How bad is it, Doc?
5: The test results have come back positive for cancer. That's right. I'm afraid it's the worst kind, a stage four non-Hopkins lymphoma. I mean, Doc, I mean look at me. Do I look like somebody who has cancer? However well you feel on the outside, the cancer is killing you from the inside. No. There's that, that's, that's no way that I'm dying. I mean look at me, Doc. I'm dying? You're telling me I'm dying? Not necessarily. The good news is that we have a complete cure. One dose and the cancer will be completely gone. <laughs> You're telling me in that bowel there's something that can heal me? One dose. I mean, doc, I don't know what to say. I mean, that's the best news. I mean, that is the best news that you could have ever told me.
1: One of the most important and sadly often ignored keys to effective evangelizing is showing people that they're dead in trespasses and sins, a walking corpse in desperate need of a resurrection. And the primary means that God has appointed to bring men to an awareness of the sin and death that rages in their very being is through His law, the Ten Commandments. Like a CAT scan that can find the silent killer, the cancer or the clogged artery, the commandments reveal the true state of our souls.
2: So what the law of God does is it provides us with the guideline, the plumb line, the, 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 the reality check that enables us to hold the line and to produce something that is genuinely and objectively good rather than just subjectively good.
0: We study the law of God because the law reveals to us not only The righteousness of God and His holiness, but by contrast, it stands as a mirror. I look in the mirror of God's law, and I realize my utter helplessness in and of myself.
1: Much of the church today, unlike the church of decades and centuries past, has a definite problem with the law of God as found in the Ten Commandments. Many believe it to be antiquated harsh or part of the Old Testament and therefore of no use to New Testament Christians. But as Paul wrote to Timothy, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. By way of an analogy, the law of God is good in the same way that fire can be good. Fire, if used lawfully, can produce energy. Heat a home on a cold morning or cook a hot meal after a long day's work. If used unlawfully... Fire can cause pain, suffering, and destruction on a grand scale. And so it is with the Ten Commandments. If one uses it as a tool for self-righteousness or to earn heaven, he will eventually find that at the end of the law, there is nothing but death. The law of God was never intended to save. The Apostle Paul explains, For by the law is the knowledge of sin that as fallen creatures we would not have known sin except through the law. He further observed that the law has the unique ability to magnify the horror of our transgressions so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. The law is also universal in its scope that every mouth may be stopped and the entire world may become guilty before God and pedagogical in its purpose and impact. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law of the Lord is perfect, sang the psalmist, converting the soul. In commenting on this passage, Matthew Henry notes that the law shows us our sinfulness and misery in our departures from God and the indispensable necessity of our return to Him. Tragically the law of God today has largely fallen into disuse in our lawless, relativistic, do-what-is-right-in-your-own-eyes culture. Less than one professing Christian in a hundred can quote the Ten Commandments from memory. And in perhaps one of the greatest ironies of our time, Christians rally by the thousands to support the posting of the Ten Commandments in a courthouse, even while the law is missing from their hearts and pulpits. It's for this very reason that renowned evangelist and author Ray Comfort calls the preaching of the law that brings the knowledge and conviction of sin hell's best-kept secret. It didn't always used to be this way. St. Augustine observed, Sin cannot be overcome without the grace of God, so the law was given to convert the soul by anxiety about its guilt, so that it might be ready to receive grace. He continued, The law was therefore given not to take away sin, but to include all under sin, so that by this humiliation they might know that their salvation was not in their own hands. It was this same understanding that provoked John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, to cry out, The highest service to which a man may obtain on earth is to preach the law of God. Martin Luther echoed this conviction when he declared, The first duty of a preacher of the gospel is through his revealing of the law and of sin. And then explained, Thou art killed by the law that through Christ Thou mayest be quickened and restored to life. Quoting again Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, The essence of evangelism is to start by preaching the law, and it is because the law has not been preached that we have so much superficial evangelism. Charles Spurgeon also spoke about the tragic implications of minimizing the preaching of the law. By lowering the law, you weaken its power in the hands of God as a convincer of sin. It is the looking glass which shows us our spots, and that is the most powerful thing, though nothing but the gospel can wash them away. Lower the law, and you dim the light by which man perceives his guilt. This is a very serious loss to the sinner rather than a gain. Spurgeon then lays it on the line a sinner will never receive grace until he first trembles before a just and holy law John Bunyan declared the man who does not know the nature of the law cannot know the nature of sin and he who does not know the nature of sin cannot know the nature of the Savior the lightning rod of the Great Awakening George Whitfield also gave primary emphasis to the law In effecting true conversions that is the reason we have so many mushroom converts because their stony heart is not plowed they have not got a conviction of the law they are stony ground hearers the Baptist confession of 1689 explains that the Ten Commandments shows the need they sinners have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience The Westminster Confession of Faith states that the moral law is of use to unregenerate men to awaken their consciences to flee from the wrath to come and to drive them to Christ. John Wesley, the great Arminian evangelist, understood that true biblical evangelism did not start by offering grace, but by expounding the law of God. The first use of the law without question is to convince the world of sin, By this is the sinner discovered to himself. All his fig leaves are torn away, and he sees that he is wretched and poor and miserable, blind and naked. The law flashes conviction on every side. He feels himself a mere sinner. He has nothing to pay. His mouth is stopped, and he stands guilty before God. With this truth in mind, Wesley encouraged a friend to preach 90% law and 10 percent grace. Tragically much of today's church has forgotten the wisdom of these great men. Too often we have forsaken the law as the primary schoolmaster that drives rebellious sinners to Christ. We have exchanged our birthright for a mess of cheap pottage, embracing slick marketing techniques, pizza blowouts, and seeker-friendly gimmicks in the hope of increasing the numbers that walk our aisles and fill our seats. If the church does not repent of her lawless, man-centered gospel, she will continue to reap false conversions. She will find herself powerless and her pews filled with unrepentant sinners who will one day hear perhaps the most horrifying words that will ever be uttered by the Lord of hosts. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That said, this in no way means that we aren't to be winsome, loving and sensitive in our presentation of the gospel. Being uncompromising and faithful to the law of God and the power of the cross is not a license for being insensitive or obnoxious.
3: You know, the problem with the church today is that we're preaching a costless gospel. Right, where Jesus loves you just the way you are. Well, we need to be teaching that they need Christ by preaching the law of God. Here, let me show you what I mean. Hey, you got a second? Yeah. Was was that girl your wife? (laughs) No, she's not. Why? Well, you know that when you look at a woman and it's not your wife, and you've got lust in your eyes, you're breaking God's seventh commandment. Excuse me, you're you're an adulterer, but Jesus Christ went to the cross to pay the price for your adultery. If you repent of your sins and ask God's forgiveness, he can make you a child of God. What do you think? I think you're an idiot. Now I had a feeling that he was just another vessel of dishonor.
1: In direct contradistinction to this unpleasant scenario, the prophet Isaiah painted a very different picture of how the gospel should appear. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. It was said of Jesus, the greatest evangelist who will ever live, that the common people heard him gladly. So how can we see our gospel-shod feet be made truly beautiful? How can we ensure that our ambassadorship is faithful to both God and his truth and yet is gracious and winsome at the same time? So much so that the people we minister to can hear us gladly. While not necessarily exhaustive, and in no particular order as far as importance, let's close by considering nine important keys to biblical evangelism. Number one, pray for and love the people to
5: whom you bring the gospel. As Christians, we really need to get involved in prayer. Prayer for the unsaved, prayer for the lost. It's not enough to just say, thy will be done, and just hope that God will somehow reach people who don't know him. They won't. Even Jesus prayed for people who didn't know Him. He said not just the disciples was He praying for, but the people who would come to know Him through their their word. And I really believe we have the privilege, we have the opportunity and the responsibility to fervently pray and intercede with God. And that's love. Love basically is doing something, it's taking action. Number two, strive
1: to reflect the nature and truth of God in your life and character.
3: Sometimes the greatest evangelism happens when we are just living our lives you know, just being christ-like building up a, a reputation of reflecting christ
4: i think 2 corinthians 3 2 puts it best we are to be living epistles
1: being known of by all men number three ask god for wisdom proverbs eleven thirty says that the one who wins souls is wise
3: well no doubt working with god to see people saved is a wise career choice The scripture speaks of benefits, retirement benefits, if you will, concerning a better resurrection in Hebrews 11.35. So doing evangelism and partnering with God to reach souls is just a wonderful way to go.
1: But Hebrew is a notoriously ambiguous language. And this verse can just as easily mean that it takes wisdom to win souls. We're called to be as gentle as doves, but as wise as serpents. And nowhere is this more necessary than in the art of ambassadorship, particularly when you find yourself amongst wolves. Knowing when to answer a fool according to his folly and when not to is just one example of our great need for wisdom. Number four, as we've already seen, present the law of God. Number five, sow the word of God, most specifically, the good news of the atonement, the cross of Calvary.
3: Now the Bible says that Jesus was the Word made flesh. And Jesus said that if
0: he,
1: the Word, be lifted up, he would draw all men unto himself. Now that carries within it the power, and with the Holy Spirit's help, to produce faith. Number six, be a vessel of the Holy Ghost through both your life and your testimony.
3: Whether I'm sharing the gospel in a preaching context, or if I'm sharing my faith one-on-one, I just find that God wants to use me, sometimes feeling inadequate or frail. This is really a good thing, because the Bible tells us that we're jars of clay. We are frail vessels, but we can be conduits of His presence and of His glory not only with our words but with our lives when people are watching us when no words are coming out of our mouth and people are marking us from a distance the glory of god the presence of god can flow through us to touch people's lives so that they can come to christ you know really satan is the one we struggle
5: with
4: second corinthians 4 4 says that he has actively blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel who is christ christ is the image of god and through that blinding There's no doubt about it, that people don't have a testimony. It's the word of our testimony and a changed life that actually shows
2: people the impact of
4: the gospel. Number seven, move your audience
1: into a place of doubt concerning the way they're living their lives. Help them to see the futility, vanity, and inconsistencies of their worldview by casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. To put it another way, to get them to doubt the efficacy of the idolatrous belief system, the babbling tower, their flesh, the world, and the devil have created for them. The spiritual weapons we use to accomplish this are both prayer and apologetics. And when it comes to the latter, being always ready, as the Apostle Peter put it, To give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, there's just no substitute for being a well-read and thoughtful believer. Someone who, according to Hebrews 5.14, is mature, used to the solid food of the Word, and through use and practice, has trained their senses, their judgment, to discern both good and evil. A brief aside here. One of the controversies today among theologians and Christian philosophers concerns which apologetical method is the most effective and faithful to Scripture. Without getting into a lot of detail, an argument can be made that when it comes to Proverbs 26, verse 4, not answering a fool in his folly to avoid becoming like him, the presuppositional method developed by Gordon Clark, Cornelius Van Til, and others is perhaps the best way to go. I mean, do you see what I'm saying? Can you comprehend JT, what we're J, talking I, about? I
2: don't believe in God. I mean, that's your truth. That's not my truth. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that, man. You do what's real to you, but you can't tell me there's this good and evil. and there's, I mean, there's no absolute truth. It's your perspective. I got my perspective, too. And there's a truth inside of me that I'm living by. I'm doing what I need to do. Being true to me. Being true to me. Okay.
3: Okay. Hey, what are you doing, dude? Dude, what are you doing? No, that's my stuff. What are you doing?
5: No, hey, listen, just put, hey, put it back, hey. dude. those are my brand new shoes. Hey, put my my mom got me that. What are you? What are you? What are you doing? Yeah, man, I'll holler at you later. See you. Dude, you can't just come in here and take my stuff. I can't you judging me?
3: Man, look, I'm just doing what you said, you know, following my heart. You got some nice stuff. I need some nice stuff. Uh, you are still cool with that, right? No, I'm not cool
5: well, with look, that. Man, I got to bounce. Are your key still in against you My key.
1: But when it comes to the flip side of Proverbs 26:5, answering the fool according to his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes every apologetical method may have a role to play. As we follow in his footsteps and practice incarnational Christianity, entering into the world of the unbeliever, we relate to people on whatever level we can. Yes, in our hearts we understand that their questions and doubts are ultimately expressions of their own sinfulness and rebellion. But as we love people and connect with them, AS WE PRAY FOR THEM AND CARRY THE LIVING WATER OF THE GOSPEL TO THEM THROUGH THE VESSELS OF OUR LIVES AND THE WORDS OF OUR TESTIMONY, AND AS WE CHALLENGE THEM WITH THE TRUTH OF GOD'S WORD WHILE LOOKING FOR WAYS TO ENGAGE THEM IN A CONVERSATION ABOUT ETERNAL THINGS, WE BECOME A CONDUIT FOR THE GRACE AND THE MERCY OF GOD. WE ARE NEVER TO TRUST IN OUR EVANGELISTIC ABILITIES OR OUR APOLOGETICAL SKILLS. We trust in the God above, beyond, and behind all these things. Closely related to this is our next point. Help your audience acknowledge the truth that God has already placed in their hearts but that they are desperately working to suppress in their unrighteousness. Again, take great confidence in knowing that deep down and very possibly now gushing to the surface. They know what you're saying is true. In teaching on this truth to a Christian audience, I'll often use a jack-in-the-box as a visual aid. Picture Jack as the truth, the knowledge that Jesus is Lord and that we're not, that we're all sinners in desperate need of a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior. In his fallenness and his sinful desire to be his own God, to do what's right in his own eyes, the unregenerate person squeezes Jack down into the box of his heart and then sets out to do everything he can to forget that Jack's down there. But as we love and pray for them and faithfully do the work of an ambassador, as we've discussed, we, meaning you and the Holy Spirit, are turning the crank on their heart box, waiting for the tumbler to click and for Jack to pop out. And lastly, number nine, clearly challenge your audience to repent and believe the gospel to be reconciled to God. The Bible tells us that no one is seeking God. The lost are not seeking God. God
0: himself is seeking the lost. And our part in evangelism is to tell people what God requires of them, which primarily is to repent. It's to change your mind
1: about the good news of the gospel. Our job as Christ's ambassadors is to strive to be faithful and to grow in all nine areas as much as we can. What happens as a result of our ambassadorship, however, is up to God. Some of those you minister to may experience the mercy of God and regeneration, repentance, and salvation. Others may leave with seed planted for another day of watering and eventual harvest. And there may be some who only experience God's anger, who leave with hearts all the more hardened, with the truth pushed and locked back down into their heart boxes, waiting for the day when God will bring it forth, and judge the secrets of men's hearts through Jesus Christ. All three of these potential scenarios bring glory to God and are the righteous fruits of a successful ambassadorship. It's been well said that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Glorifying and enjoying God is not just some greeting card piety, however, it carries with it a host of things we must both believe and do. Chief among them is to understand who He is and who we are in relation to Him. It's here where the truly amazing grace we've looked at in the previous two sections is so vitally important. A close second, however, is to share the same passions and desires of our Heavenly Father. And chief among them as regards the world of man is the salvation of His elect and the restoration of this world into its intended purpose. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The great shepherd Jesus humbled himself to redeem the lost sheep of his pasture. Can we be satisfied with anything less? We close with this last thought. For better or worse, one characteristic of today's church, or at least the one in America, is the great interest in biblical prophecy and the events that will accompany the end of the age and the return of Christ. What's interesting about this is that scholars disagree as to which events are yet in the future and which ones have been fulfilled. From the great tribulation to the gospel being preached in all the world, it is by no means certain that these events weren't accomplished before the end of the first century. There is one thing, however, that everyone agrees has yet to be fulfilled, perhaps the clearest and most universally accepted scriptural tipping point for the consummation of our present age. The apostle Peter spoke very clearly about the eschaton, the end of the world when the present cosmos will be transformed. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. He specifically addresses the mystery of this event's timing, calling us to patient labor and reminding us that God's timetable is not the same as ours. But beloved, Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. But then the Holy Spirit, through Peter, gives us the rationale for all the waiting and patient toil. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." And so we see that Jesus is patiently waiting before he returns and breaks down the tent so to speak of the present cosmos. And why is he waiting? That none of us would perish, but that all come to repentance. And who is this all? Well, it certainly can't mean all people. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that there are many who travel the wide path to destruction and end up in hell. In addition, If he's not willing that any should perish, and yet many do, we're left with a God who cannot accomplish his perfect will. And this is certainly not the God of the Bible. No, the all that Jesus is waiting for, the none that he's not willing to let perish, are the sheep of his flock, the elect that he died for and is committed to saving. And so the ultimate tipping point of the eschaton is the day when the last lost sheep is ushered in to his pasture. Understanding all this, how should we then live? Peter tells us, Therefore, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And so we end. The banquet of God's amazing grace laid before us. Not only has our great Lord paid the ultimate price to redeem us and raise us from the dead, and not only is He patiently waiting for our other brothers and sisters to be saved. He has blessed us with the inexpressible privilege and honor of working with Him in bringing those elect brethren into His kingdom. Let us long for our King's return, let us hasten the day, let us seek so that he might save the lost.